Welcome. My name is Anakshi Sokti. It's wonderful to see participants join us from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, the Middle East, the US, even the Bahamas. On behalf of the Harvard Business School India Research Center and our faculty here in Boston, our esteemed colleagues from Harvard Business Publishing, the Lakshmi Mittal South Asia Institute, and our panelists, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the second conversation in our webinar series, Leadership Perspectives for a Changing World. With over 7 million people diagnosed with COVID-19 and over 400,000 deaths globally, it is no surprise that all eyes are fixed with hope and anticipation on the scientific community and the pharmaceuticals industry. Today, we have a stellar panel sharing their thoughts on how science and business are collaborating to develop vaccines and drugs to combat the pandemic. We do hope our series of conversations present relevant research, potential frameworks, and possible solutions that you can use as you navigate the space. And with that, I'd like to welcome Professor Tarun Khanna to set the context and introduce the panel. Well, thank you, Nakshi. Thank you, team, India Research Center and Mittal Institute. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, we like to say at Harvard that our mission is to educate leaders of all sorts who try to make a difference in the world. And I hope that this small but important orchestration on our part is a step in the right direction. As Nakshi said, it's a really sobering time in the world. I'm locked down in my home in Newton, Massachusetts, and watching my other home in Delhi. It's very sobering. I just can't imagine what's going on. And I see the data that say that cases in Mumbai have exceeded the Wuhan peak, and Delhi, unfortunately, is not too far behind. And I'm sure the rest of South Asia is, is troubled as well. But without belaboring the obvious crisis that we're in the middle of, both health and economic crises, let me just turn to introduce our amazing panelists, and a very big thank you to all of them for taking the trouble to, to join us. I'm going to introduce them in the very informally, if I'm allowed, just in the interest of time. They're all much more eminent than am I, and don't need any belabored introductions, but I'll just say a word or two about them in the order in which they're going to speak to set up the conversation that will then follow. First off to me be Dr. Gagandeep Kang, who is the Vice Chair of CEPI. CEPI is an acronym, Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, which is an organization that is dedicated to funding research on vaccines. She's, of course, a major researcher in India on enteric infections. As she likes to say, as others like to say, it's all in the gut, as it were. These infections have lasting effects, particularly if they happen to afflict kids. She's a recipient of many awards, including the Infosys Prize in Life Sciences. It's a real pleasure to have her, and she's going to speak a lot about the science, what we know and what we don't know. And I'm sure she'll speak to us in uh, somewhat intuitive terms for those of us who are not life scientists. Uh, she'll be followed by my good friend, David Bloom, an exemplary economist at the Harvard T. H. Chan School of Public Health, and frankly, a friend to me and a mentor if you'll allow me to call him that, over the decades. Uh, he's an astute observer of India. Bangalore is his second home. And what's most relevant about David's encyclopedic work on demography and public health is the fact that he happens to have studied vaccines for a very long time. So he's going to talk about the broader social and uh, economic ramifications of not having adequate vaccination in societies. Umang Bora, who is the managing director and global CEO of CIPLA, I've requested him to share with us. CIPLA doesn't work in vaccines per se. It's one of the leading firms in the world on ensuring access to high-quality 
low-cost medication to the developing populations of the world. So he's going to pick up on Dr. Deeps and then uh, David's comments about the possibilities of science and talk about the role that the private sector can play. And in particular, emphasize some of the things that may get in the way of the private sector playing these roles. So with that introduction to the panelists, I will just say a few words. I am an applied math person, not really a vaccine scientist or a life scientist, and I work at Harvard Business School for the last 25 years. And my interest is in understanding how analytics and economics in particular can be used to structure things so that good things happen in the world, in particular the developing world, which is 100% of my attention. So back into the topic here, I guess it would help to note, it may be obvious to some people, but to others it may not be, that the big problem with vaccines was that going back two decades or even more than that, they were actually inadequate economic incentives for pharmaceutical companies to develop vaccines. And the reason was that most people in the world who needed the vaccines, which is everybody, just didn't have the money to pay for them. So you had big pharma on one side uh, and science on one side, organized science on one side, primarily in the rich countries in the world, essentially seceding from vaccine space gradually over time. And what that meant was that even though the possibilities of science were alive and well, the economic conditions were not in place and nobody was focused on this to get the science into the product and then get them disseminated to the public. So not only was this a, was a problem in terms of getting new vaccines developed, it was even a problem in the sense that there were lots of vaccines. The yellow fever is the one that comes to mind that were available in the rich world, but it would take 10, 15 years for them to slowly disseminate to the poorer countries in the world, often triggered by a catastrophe of some sort. Into this step, many well-meaning philanthropists and forward-looking sovereigns, think about the Scandinavian countries, the UK, France, spaces like that, and Mr. Gates. So this was one of the first projects of what became, of course, now the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Taking on this idea, and famously, Bill Gates apparently said that to run something like Gavi, which is Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunization, that was the original acronym. Famously, Gates thought that Gavi could be run with five guys and a spreadsheet should be enough to be able to do the analytics to make sure that enough incentives are in place for the science to be unlocked for people to be willing to receive catalytic doses of money in the private sector so that they could develop the vaccines and then they would end up getting used. Gavi, of course, is a 300-person virtual alliance of sorts running out of Geneva in New York, run by my colleague and friends at Berkeley. It's an extraordinary organization. And I think of it as the entity that waits for vaccines to be developed and then makes sure that the incentives are in place for governments and private sector actors and other nonprofits to take the vaccines and deploy them. Sort of a, a parallel organization is CEPI which Galindeep will talk about. She's the vice chair of CEPI currently, which is also sort of funded by many of the same people, same organizations and sovereigns, but its function is more to fund research on vaccines. So think of Doosley and, you know, David and Galindeep can correct me off if I misstate this, but I think of it as, uh, in American parlance, it would be a pitcher and a catcher concept for those who are joining us from the North America or a bowler and a batter in cricket terms. But the idea is CEPI funds the research for the vaccines, and once the vaccines are available, then Gavi puts the incentives in place to get them out there. And I think what I learned most from a deep dive into Gavi was that it really pays that there is as much of a role for scientific creativity as for organizational entrepreneurship and creativity, because until you can have these intermediating organizations... So if you think of vaccine development and science on one side as the supply side, and you think of the demand side being you and I who need the vaccines and poorer people all around who are less fortunate who need the vaccines, 
a lot of stuff has to happen in between for the conditions to be created for the science to come to market. But I also found really fascinating things is that there's so many simple to state, difficult to put into place economic ideas. Among them, the ones that I like, I'll just highlight two to illustrate my point. Uh, the idea of vaccine bonds, which are bonds that are floated in the uh, global capital markets, either the Eurobond markets or in the or a Sukuk bond in the Middle East or a bond directed to Japanese pension funds. They are financial securities designed to ensure that when sovereigns make commitments to donate money, those commitments are made over very long time horizons and are often subject to political issues in the donor country. But to translate them into something very credible for people like Umang, who are charged with their shareholder responsibilities in private entities, it's important to have more credible finance. And that's where the global capital markets come in to say, yes, we see the promise. We think that this can be transformed into a short-run credible promise that will reassure manufacturers to invest in the capacity to make the vaccine so that we have it in the first place. So vaccine bonds are a cool idea, but the more important underlying point that I'm trying to make is that there has to be a financial engineer or an economic architect that is thinking about these things in order for this stuff to happen. My roommate, Michael Kramer, is one of the people who came up with the idea of advanced market commitments, which are another way of making a credible promise from governments to manufacturers, saying, you know, we assure you that we will top up the amount that poorer people may not be able to pay you if you commit to producing and selling this much of vaccines. So you think of it loosely as an alternative to a patent mechanism for reassuring people of doing things so that they have the incentives to do it. So I'm going to stop with that. So just think for the non-specialists in the audience, which I think is most of us, and I'm included in that bunch, think of the science being developed by amazing scientists. Think of the users, you and I, and less fortunate people, and think about the organizational creativity that has to happen in between. And now we're going to go on the science and then talk about the intermediating mechanisms and the private sector and to see how this can play out. So without further ado, let me invite Gagandeep Kang to please unmute herself and share some of the science with us. And Seppi, please. So thank you very much, Tarun, for the introduction and for setting the stage. And really to talk about the pandemic, I'm going back to an epidemic, and the epidemic is Ebola. So if you look at what happened about six years ago in West Africa, you had the Ebola outbreak, which affected about 30,000 people. We have another one ongoing at the moment, but that was the one that kind of brought Ebola to the forefront. So it affected just 30,000 people, but it was something that everybody in the world got to know about. It was estimated that of those 30,000 people, about 30% died. It cost about $4 billion in direct costs, but the World Bank has estimated that it cost about $54 billion in total costs. So the funny thing about Ebola and that outbreak was that there was actually an Ebola vaccine. The vaccine had been made, it had been sitting in somebody's freezer in Canada for a while, and there was no interest in an Ebola vaccine, even though the disease had been known since 1976, and the vaccine was never developed. When Ebola came around, then suddenly everybody started jumping up and down and saying, oh gosh, deadly disease might spread to many parts of the world, let's make a vaccine. And they looked around and they found multiple vaccine candidates and started work on the vaccine. But by the time they actually got 
their act together and started to test the vaccine. It was towards the end of the epidemic. Many things had happened in terms of setting up Ebola hospitals, etc., and getting WHO, getting partners on board. And finally, the vaccine started to be tested more than six months after Ebola had been declared a public health emergency of international concern. What happened with that vaccine was you didn't wind up with enough cases of Ebola to be able to say whether the vaccine truly worked or not. So it wasn't possible to take that vaccine at that time all the way to licensure. Now, while Ebola was happening, people started to think about why are we in this situation when there was a vaccine available? Why has it taken us so long to get to this point? And that's how CEPI was formed. CEPI was actually going to be pandemic preparedness. And then it was decided that when there is a pandemic, everybody in the world is going to be interested in making vaccines. However, if there are epidemics, and if those epidemics happen in low and middle income countries, then nobody is going to be interested in vaccines. And it's important to recognize that over the last 30 years, with consolidation and shutting down and buyouts, we've actually wound up with very few multinational companies wanting to make vaccines. And the ones that do want to make vaccines for a developed country market where they can sell lots and lots of doses every year. Nobody wants to make an Ebola vaccine when Ebola is going to affect, in its largest outbreak, 30,000 people. You don't make vaccines only if you need 100,000 doses. So in response to all of this, a bunch of people, the Wellcome Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum, the Government of Norway, and the Department of Biotechnology from India decided to get together, and they were the five founder members of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. The idea of CEPI was, can we identify what is going to cause outbreaks and start work to develop vaccines on those targets, as well as can we think about platforms that will allow us to develop vaccines really quickly. So if we are going to have a disease X, a disease that nobody knows about currently, that's going to emerge at some unknown time and some unknown location and affect an unknown number of people, can we really make a vaccine quickly? So SEPI got started about three years ago and funded its first platform technologies program targeting disease X last year. And when we had the pandemic starting in January, on January 10th, we got the sequences of SARS coronavirus 2. By the end of January, SEPI had funded four programs to make vaccines, taking all of the programs that it had for disease X and converting them into programs for this new target. One of the things that is most interesting from a scientific perspective about this pandemic is how much science is being used. In the last 20 years, we've had an explosion of technologies that allow us to make new vaccines, that allow us to interrogate the immune system in ways that we've never done before. And we are using every one of those technologies to address SARS-CoV-2. 
There are currently about 230 programs that are looking at making vaccines. There are about 130 that are reasonably advanced, and we have 10 vaccines that are already in clinical trials. And these started out being in clinical trials, mostly in the wealthy countries, in Germany, in the UK, in the US. But I just heard that AstraZeneca has signed up Brazil, and that will be the first low and middle income country that will be participating in a trial of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Now, why vaccines? Obviously, it's better to be able to prevent a disease than to treat it. And this is something that everybody is waiting for. And there are a lot of naysayers who say, do we know we are going to be able to make a vaccine? This is a completely new virus. We don't know enough about it. But I think the data that are emerging from the clinical trials, as well as from the studies that we are seeing in experimental animals, are telling us that a vaccine is feasible. We've had vaccines that are quite strongly immunogenic that allow people to make not just antibodies that you can measure in the form of binding to proteins, but also antibodies that are functional, that allow for neutralization of the virus. And that usually means for most viruses that we are going to have a vaccine that is going to work. We also have monkey studies that have been done with at least two of the vaccines. And in one study, we were able to completely prevent infection. And in the other study, we were able to prevent disease. These are very reassuring data that tell us that if we can get the right kind of vaccine, there is a good chance that these vaccines will succeed. Now, I'd like to move from that which is the global picture to what's happening in India. And in India, I think one of the things that people need to recognize, it's known in India, but perhaps not in other parts of the world, that India actually makes more doses of vaccine than any other country in the world. We are the biggest supplier to Gabi, which Tarun mentioned a little while ago. And three companies that work out of India are major suppliers. They can make hundreds of millions of doses every year. And these are Serum Institute of India, Bharat Biotech, and BioE. Each of them has started on multiple vaccine candidates. And there are smaller companies in India as well that are looking to make new vaccines. So there are more than a dozen programs making vaccines in India. We are a little bit behind what has been done in the West, but we are anticipating that we will be in clinical studies in Q3 of 2020. So that is one way of thinking about it. Will our own vaccine candidates actually result in vaccines? The other part of it is something that is in the news and will be in the news, is India's manufacturing capacity. Because we have the capacity to make so much vaccine, depending on which platforms are successful, if you need to make hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine, you really need to be thinking about coming to India if that platform exists in India. So a lot of the multinational companies are having discussions with Indian manufacturers to see whether their vaccines can be made here. 
There's also, even if we don't manufacture, we have a lot of fill finish capacity. So if was required, then we could use some of our finishing lines to make vaccines for the world. There are, of course, lots of issues. There's regulatory issues. There's a global shortage of glass. There's a global shortage of syringes. 230 candidates might mean that three or four will succeed. So we've got a long way to go before we get to vaccines. But I think we are on the right track. We are moving as fast as is possible and faster than I thought was possible six months ago. So thank you, Tarun, and I'll come back in later. Thank you so much. Let me just ask you one question before we go to David. It's coming through on the strolling functions. To, to novices like me, it's kind of sobering to, that note of optimism is wonderful because it's sobering to realize that some viruses like, like HIV, we've not been able to create a vaccine and after you know many decades. And that seems to be related to a question that's coming through a few times about the mutation of SARS-CoV-2. Can you talk about differences in the way viruses mutate and how that may or may not get in the way of vaccines or cocktails of drugs that ultimately control infections and so on? So SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. RNA viruses mutate more than DNA viruses do. But you have to think about why a virus mutates. A virus mutates to get away from the immune system. And that's the response that would require us to have a new vaccine. There are actually very few RNA viruses for which we have made vaccines where the immune pressure has been so much that it has required us to change the vaccine. We've never made a vaccine for HIV. We have to change vaccines for influenza. But even there, if you were infected with an old influenza strain, you might still have partial protection. In the case of this new virus, there is no pressure on it to mutate in the areas that are responsible for the entry of the virus, that are responsible for neutralization. So many of the changes, the strains that we are seeing currently are important for tracking transmission, but are not yet currently in as much as will require us to change vaccine strains. So I think for a few years, we are on pretty good ground. Great. Thank you very much. Let me turn to David Blue. Thanks, Tarun, and uh, hi, everyone. So far in this session, we've heard about two bona fide institutional innovations, Gavi and CEPI. We heard from Tarun, Gavi is an innovative mechanism for mobilizing funds and channeling them into productive uses that involve the promotion of vaccine access and coverage in low-income settings. And Gagandeep described CEPI as an innovative mechanism for mobilizing funds and channeling them into the development of vaccines for emerging communicable diseases. Uh, what I'd like to do now is to add to the discussion by focusing on another innovation, conceptual innovation, having to do with the way that we assess and value vaccinations. I mean, this is also an innovation that supports the efforts of Gavi, it supports the efforts of CEPI, supports the efforts of developing country vaccine manufacturers, and also vaccine development divisions, Big Pharma. And what I'd like to do is structure my remarks. I make three points. First, I'm gonna argue that vaccines are generally undervalued and often appreciably so. Second, I'm going to argue that undervaluation, this undervaluation, is very much to our individual and collective peril with respect to the optimal allocation of social resources. And third, I'm going to argue that the problem of undervaluation can be surmounted, fortunately, by adopting a broad approach to health technology assessment 
essentially what we need to do is we need to shift from a narrow health-centric perspective to a more expansive societal perspective. And I'll say a few things at the, at the very end about COVID and what COVID means for some of these points. Now, very briefly, uh, when health economists assess vaccines for purposes of public recommendation and reimbursement decisions, they typically and traditionally focus on two items. First, the health gains associated directly and sometimes indirectly with the use of the vaccine. And second, reductions in medical care costs that are due to having fewer infections. They then calculate what in health economics we call a cost-effectiveness ratio. That's basically the ratio of the health gains to the cost of the immunizing agent and its administration, that cost being net of avoided medical care costs. And if the resulting cost-effectiveness ratio exceeds some pre-specified threshold, the vaccine gets a thumbs up with respect to recommendation and reimbursement decisions. So it's very cost-effective in the sense that per dollar spent, it produces a lot of health, basically the idea. Now, I acknowledge that morbidity and mortality reductions, in other words, health improvements, uh, and also medical care cost savings are indisputably benefits of vaccination. And I'm not arguing that the cost-effectiveness analyses that are routinely conducted throughout the world in connection with these recommendation and reimbursement decisions. I'm not arguing that they're inherently flawed. In fact, I think they answer very well key question that's faced by ministries of health and departments of health, and namely that being how to prioritize the use of a fixed health sector budget to maximize health. My point is simply that the dominant focus of these health-centric cost-effectiveness analyses is limited to a very narrow portion of the total benefits enjoyed by society from a vaccine. The narrow health-centric cost-effectiveness analyses leave out a long list of economic and social benefits. They also leave out some health benefits. I'm going to speak about those briefly. And neglecting all of these sources of health, economic, and social benefits skews decisions about the allocation of social resources in a socially optimal direction. In other words, it makes it socially suboptimal. And my point here is basically that too little money is getting allocated for the development, the manufacture, and the delivery of vaccines. I hope you all won't mistake this for a bland assertion. I think it's hard to believe now in June, but the World Bank in CEPI was struggling mightily as recently as March and April to raise just $2 billion in support of R&D on 8 to 10 COVID-19 vaccine candidates. And many of the arguments that I'm going to discuss were used in support of their fundraising efforts. Let me just quickly share a small subset of the ways in which health economists around the world give short shrift to the full societal benefits of vaccines. So I'm going to talk first, say a few words about the health benefits, then something about the economic benefits that are neglected, and then something about the social benefits. So in terms of the health benefits associated with vaccines, traditional health-centric cost-effectiveness analyses commonly neglect vaccine-caused reductions in the pace at which antimicrobial resistance develops. That's due to both resistance developing both at a slower pace because of vaccines prevention of resistant infections and also to reductions in both the appropriate and inappropriate consumption of antibiotics. Now, antimicrobial resistance is a whole other dark cloud hanging over humanity. It's as significant a dark cloud as COVID-19 at the moment. And I would say that the value of vaccines in addressing that threat needs proper consideration and measurement. In terms of neglected health benefits, traditional cost-effectiveness analyses also give short shrift to preservation of the microbiome associated with reduced consumption of antibiotics. This is something that Gagandi taught me a number of years ago, and I think it's 
all of a sudden starting to come to the fore again. People are realizing, I think as you put it, Gagandeep, the gut is where it's at. I think it's true. And antibiotics undermine the gut and the health-promoting effects of good gut health. Traditional cost-effectiveness analyses also neglect reductions in health conditions that are comorbid with the conditions that are directly caused by the pathogen that's the target for a vaccine. And cost-effectiveness analyses even neglect herd effects as well in, in many cases. So those are some of the neglected health benefits of vaccines, which I actually think is inexcusable on the part of, of the health community to have neglected these benefits for so long. But let me go on and make a couple of other points here. And the next point is that routine health center cost-effectiveness analyses also typically neglect a slew, a whole slew of vaccinations' economic benefits. And I'll just mention a couple. For one, they neglect the higher returns to education due to healthier kids having improved school attendance, higher educational attainment, and better cognitive function and focus. Um, we think of education as having a very special place among instruments of economic growth and development, and it's also inexcusable that we've neglected the benefits that vaccination brings to and the enhancement it gives to the, the return on uh, investments in education. Economic, health economic cost-effectiveness analyses also neglect increased labor force participation, increased hours worked, increases in productivity and adult earnings. I mean, I'm talking here about the additional income that people generate when they're healthy enough to work and also don't have to care for ailing family members. And that's not to mention the increased value of non-market time in various productive activities involving family and community, which is especially important among the elderly. We tend to basically discount the value of the lives of older people because, well, they don't work. But actually, older people, if you look at time use studies, older people engaged in a great many productive non-market activities, and we should be valuing that as well. And if you do, it enhances the value of vaccination considerably for an elder vaccination. Finally, traditional health-centric cost-effectiveness analyses often leave out important social benefits. And here, I would just draw very quickly everyone's attention to the improvements in social equity that typically result from the fact that benefits of vaccines often accrue disproportionately to poor people who live under crowded conditions, and also to disadvantaged racial and ethnic minorities and vulnerable groups like women and children who may just simply lack access to healthcare. So that's my first point about the undervaluation of vaccines. Let me turn quickly now to a second point having to do with the fact that the undervaluation can lead to an inefficient allocation of social resources. And I'll make this quick because I'm basically trying to convey the idea that taking account of full societal benefits is consequential not just in theory, it's also an important idea in practice as well. So suppose a public authority decides that a vaccine doesn't create enough value to merit investment. It happens every day throughout the world. But let's also suppose that this authority considered only a narrow swath of a vaccine's full societal benefits. From our point of view, we can't be sure that their negative decision is a good one. Perhaps it's the case that the vaccine would have demonstrated high value for money had the authority focused on the full benefits. And what I can tell you is that with few exceptions, Studies on the full societal value of vaccination point to rates of return that vary from attractive to super attractive to absolutely eye-popping. And I'm speaking here of rates of return that easily surpass the return on investment in basic education, even basic education for girls, which operates, as I alluded to a moment ago, kind of an exalted place in most of our minds and our treatises uh, as an instrument of economic growth and development. 
I'm speaking here of benefit-cost ratios that flip from less than one, which is basically a thumbs down on making the investment, to one under narrow benefit conceptualizations, to decisively more than one under appropriately broader frameworks. And I'm also speaking of return on investment numbers that sometimes surpass 100%. To put that in context with a yardstick, that's nearly two orders of magnitude higher and the current yield on US Treasury bills. So yes, vaccines are costly to do, but what we are increasingly finding conceptually and supported almost uniformly by empirical evidence is that vaccines are far more costly not to do. I note here as well that the arguments that I'm offering in support of the need to measure full societal benefits are not limited to health technology assessment of vaccines. They apply quite generally to all health interventions. So that would include medical devices, pharmaceutical drugs, health system strengthening and reform as well. But the point is that vaccines are specifically disadvantaged by the narrow health perspective that has dominated the conduct of health technology assessment for decades. And that's a disadvantage that reflects the time horizon for enjoying the benefits of avoiding childhood inv infectious disease mainly. That's the primary target of most vaccines and it tends to be much longer than for the treatment and prevention of disease among adults or older people. The disadvantage of vaccines also reflects the relatively large populations that vaccines can benefit and the fact that vaccination against infectious diseases tends to have larger externality benefits than interventions against non-communicable diseases, heart disease, chronic respiratory disease, cancer, diabetes, mental health problems as well. So to wrap this second point up, the good news, I would say, is that all the benefits I've discussed, all of these additional health benefits, economic and social benefits, can at least in principle be conceptualized, they can be quantified, they can be monetized, and they can be coherently and consistently analyzed in the form of a benefit cost analysis or a rate of return analysis that's so familiar to all the, the business community. Let me now just move to kind of a final set of comments that I want to make, offer a few remarks on the implications of the pandemic for the structure and operation of immunization ecosystems and also for global understanding of the value of vaccination. And let me just distinguish between the short run and long run implications of the pandemic. So in the short run, COVID-19 has interrupted many routine immunization programs, and that threatens to elevate rates of vaccine-preventable diseases and also their physical, their mental, and their cognitive health sequelae across the life cycle. So just as one example, um, just last month, the WHO, UNICEF, and Gavi reported that the pandemic is forcing 80 million children to at least temporarily forego vaccine protection against one or more disease-causing pathogens. So that 80 million corresponds to roughly 60% of the world's annual birth cohort. And I would note that the WHO also expressed concern about COVID-19 caused interruptions in polio eradication efforts. And they also called out the possibility of a worldwide surge in measles cases, which would be most regrettable. Anyway, notwithstanding these significant short-run speed bumps, COVID-19 could, I would say over a longer horizon, actually mark a sea change in global appreciation of the value of vaccination. And that's a speculation on my part, but it's a speculation that is underlined by the notion that the range and the intensity of the losses that we are all suffering during the current pandemic are going to have the beneficial effect of highlighting the gains to be had from preventing COVID-19 in particular and infectious diseases more generally. So along those lines, I would say that COVID-19 is going to raise awareness of, and I think will help lay to rest a long list of scientific policy and economic disputes about the value of vaccination. So this list includes disputes about indirect protection of vaccination involving the promotion of herd protection 
Earth protection has now become a household term, and I think everyone's starting to assimilate the idea, and I think it's going to be increasingly reflected in the analyses that we do. The list of areas where awareness is going to be raised of the value of vaccination also includes the reduction in the risk of nosocomial infection during inpatient stays. So many people are not going into hospitals and clinics for fear of contracting COVID, so they're just suffering at home when they're in need of medical care. One of the values of vaccine, but it keeps people out of hospitals, it keeps them from contracting nosocomial infections and basically orotrophin resistant infections, which they transmit to others. I'm talking here also about disputes about the economic benefits of vaccination associated with increased labor supply, hours, work, productivity, and income. We're talking about trillions of dollars of economic losses here that vaccine for COVID could have actually promoted. And I would just call attention here to the fact that several years ago, there was a lot of research on SARS, which is also a coronavirus. And we were in a pattern of basically panic neglect at that point. So that was a period of panic. A lot of research was done. But as soon as SARS abated, we went into a period of neglect. And during that period of neglect, we basically gave short shrift to further research. And we would be much better off today had we continued that research. The, the basic point I'm trying to make here is that, you know, I understand that the COVID-19 pandemic is a terrible calamity, but if it has any silver lining, I think it may prove to be the way in which COVID-19 helps us blaze a new path for vaccines that is going to enable them to elevate their contribution to human health and well-being in the future. Super important point. And I had a couple of follow-up questions that I'm going to hold back. Go to Umang and then we can move to our discussion. Umang, if you don't mind, please. So, Tarun, thank you for having me on this panel. I represent CIPLA, which has years and years of uh, experience in treating HIV, antimicrobial resistance, working with, you know, we also sell vaccines, but we don't make vaccines. And so some of the comments that I'm going to make today, and essentially the three of them, are really around what does it take to move from the hope that the vaccine offers to a point where vaccination delivers lasting cure, vaccination or other treatments deliver lasting cure. So let's start with that. I think I'm going to take on lessons that we've picked up through this in our practice in Asia, in Africa, maybe other parts of the world. But I'm also going to argue that I think if we begin to look at this, this is perhaps the first or maybe one of the few times in the world and at this scale of 8 billion people that you're going to have an adult vaccination program. So keep that in mind. You know, child immunization is different. Adult vaccination is different. And in some way, the pharmaceutical industry has dealt with this before when it tried to find cures for, for diseases like HIV, etc. So I'm going to talk a little about that. But I'd just like to say these are all my learnings and we're humbled every year with something new that we pick up and how we need to tweak models to make sure that care reaches where it needs to. So I'm essentially going to talk about three things. I do want to talk right at the beginning about this balance between equitable access and in some way vaccine nationalism. And I think there's a way out there. And again, it's, it's out of the lessons that we've had uh, working in some of these markets. The second theme I do want to talk about is availability and affordability, and that necessarily does not mean access. And, you know, what happens when you bring access into the equation? And the third thing that I would always advocate is there has to be a plan, because I think, the, the, I'm, you know, I'm as hopeful as Dr. Kang and, uh, and David are about having the vaccine, but it's going to be four years, five years before everyone gets vaccinated, and the world still has to live with this disease till then. And we don't even know if there's immunity that's going to be guaranteed for a very long period of time with each vaccine. So let me start with the first, and this is really about achieving this balance between equitable access and vaccine nationalism. And I think this is, a, this is an important point, and I think it's an important point for most governments to consider, because I think very often the emerging side of the world and the developed side of the world are on opposite sides of this equation. I think the emerging side of the world always thinks about the developed side of the world arguing for vaccine nationalism. Actually, it should be just the other way around. 
I think it's the emerging side of the world that needs to argue for vaccine nationalism. The more the emerging side of the world argues for its own sources of medicine, its own sources of vaccines, the faster is it going to be easier to eradicate this. So I think if you were to you know, just broadly put this, other than India, there's no other big emerging market. Now, of course, China's coming in as well, but there's no other big emerging market that has enormous amounts of vaccine production. And I think that's something for everyone to think about. Not only is it for vaccines, even for pharmaceutical drugs, we see very little self-sufficiency across the world to do this. And I'm going to argue that the government's had a very, very large role to play in this. So I think there are models today around the world, whether it's for HIV, whether it's for other diseases, where multinational organizations are willing to share technology. If there are local players who can take that forward, and begin to produce, mass produce in their countries, right? I think we're seeing that happen now for remdesivir. We're seeing that happen for several other drugs in HIV. And I think the model exists, but the model has to be taken forward by the emerging side of the world. And manufacturing is a, is a very big role for that. So I'm going to say that, and most countries need to be a lot more vocal for being local or being vocal as in regionally cooperating. So I think if you're more vocal for local, we tend to see a huge amount of correlation between governments that set up manufacturing in their countries vis-a-vis finding an ultimate cure for the diseases that trouble them. So for example, take Uganda, take South Africa. They were seized with this AIDS epidemic. They set up manufacturing to deal with it. And there's enough amount of government skin in the game to tackle the situation. So I'm going to say that that is almost going to become a necessary condition if vaccines have to take center stage, as David was arguing, right? if, if the amount of money and research in vaccines needs to go up, I think the biggest role that needs to be played is by governments. And sadly, today, a lot of governments rely on global funding, which is my next point, to take this forward. So I want to talk about global funding because I think, you know, we're at a very weird sort of a place in history. And again, we're taking parallels from some of the other diseases that got the benefit of global funding. But we're in a very weird place. We've seen we're at a place where globalization is retreating. We're at a stage where the WHO funding is in question. And we have to think about this and say if HIV was eliminated, a lot of that had to do with PEPFAR and how the U.S. government basically bankrolled a lot of this funding under this whole theme of a threat anywhere is a threat everywhere right, to the disease. We're pretty much at the same stage here, except that the large funder governments are beginning to have thoughts about whether and how much they want to contribute to this overall cause. So, Tarun, you introduced the session by talking about vaccine bonds. Dr. Kang spoke a little about this as well in terms of being reliable. But I'm going to say that if there is no viable funding mechanism, I think it's going to be almost impossible to tackle this because no private player who has responsibilities to the shareholders or, and you know, remember, it's not just the big pharma companies that have to do this. These are ancillary units as well. The whole ecosystem for vaccine delivery or the whole ecosystem for fundamentally uh, delivering care has to be very different. So here's some trivia, right? We find that the cost of delivery and just this just the medicine cost of delivery of HIV and other drugs to some of the countries in the world is 25% of their component. It's just the freight cost of moving product from a manufacturing site to a country that it needs to be used. And that's what we mean when we say that I think if countries begin to become more vocal for local manufacturing, it's going to make a difference to the progression of the disease. So I'm going to talk a little about vaccine strategy as well. I think the two sides of the world solve for very different things. I think there's one side of the world which is solving for speed, which is the innovators and, and the people who are discovering this. And if you really go back to the 2009 epidemic, the swine flu epidemic, it's pretty much the same names coming out. Novartis has signed up, AstraZeneca's there, GSK is there. There's no difference in the, in the quality of the names that are coming out. But you have to ask, what level of vaccination success 
happened with respect to swine flu in the developed markets versus 11 years later in the developing markets of the world. Now, those two are very different in terms of overall outcomes. And I think this, the reason is that this side of the world, which is the emerging side of the world, needs to actively sign up for access. And I'm going to talk about that a little later, but I think the outcomes are very different. The Western side of the world has the benefit of concentration, has the benefit of well-set-up healthcare systems. But it's really, the story starts from the availability of a vaccine to mass vaccination or to mass cure, as you would talk about other diseases, only when the entire road is, is lined. So I think availability, and that brings me to my next point, availability and affordability are very important. And there's no doubt about it. I think the hope starts once the vaccine is cured, is available. But I'm going to argue that access is not equal solely to availability and affordability. And we've learned this the hard way. Our data suggests that the cost of the vaccine is only 50%. The cost of cure is only 50% of the total system cost. Right? So even if you have drug delivered in Uganda, even if you have drug delivered in Durban in South Africa, or you have drug delivered in Vietnam, 50% of the rest of the cost is just the total system cost to bring this drug to market that governments and other private players need to have. So the funding model we spoke about is very important. And even then, the outcomes are very different. So in South Africa, we have 4 million out of the 7 million people currently using antiretroviral drugs for HIV. Now you would think HIV is life-threatening. Why would anyone not naturally go there? And I think that's the complication of trying to get a global effort, which starts off from development all the way to commercialization. So I would articulate that there has to be solid private-public government participation over here. Private parties take the lead when funding models are very clear, when the government guarantees off-takes, and when the government has stake in manufacturing. I think the other thing that we've learned, which is also fairly significant within this overall availability plus affordability does not equal access thing, is that in trying to bring a vaccine or a cure to people versus bringing people to take the cure, I think it's always the former that wins, right? So fundamentally, the role of communities is exceedingly important, enabling any kind of mass cure or mass vaccination program. And there's this old saying that, you know, the AIDS activists have developed over a period of time. And which is whatever is done without communities is done against communities. Right? So I think something to think about the role of the community in doing this. And you know, one great example that we do at CIPLA is we have this pickup point for even delivering HIV medicines, which is right in the center of communities. Right? It's not at hospitals, it's not at mass vaccination centers elsewhere. I think the experience of polio in India and how we've been able to eradicate is pretty much the same. So I would just say that, you know, this whole thing of the community, the government, the pharmaceutical manufacturers, that's 50% of the effort over and above the vaccine and its cure. And the last thing I want to talk about today is this whole thing about plan B. I hope the vaccines work, but realistically, we've had HIV and we've had no vaccine for it. We had dengue and we've had a vaccine just last year for it. And there's a lot of hope and I hope it works. But the world has to live with supportive care till everyone gets vaccinated. And I think that's the very, very important point that we need to think about. That for three years or four years, people still have to be cured, treated, till they get a vaccine shot. And we have no clarity today on what levels of immunity the vaccine provides over a longer period of time. It could be for a year, it could be three years, could be booster doses. And so all of what we're tabulating in terms of available capacity, you know, the first set of people get vaccinated by the time the second comes, the first will be another shot. Right. I think there is going to be a, there is going to be a need for higher levels of capacity. So I'm going to argue about 
having equal amounts of money, if not more, for the pharmaceutical industry to think of antiviral drugs, to think of repurposed medicines that could cure this. Because you know, no matter what we say about a vaccine, and I'm very supportive of it, I think true cure comes when antiviral therapy is available across an oral vaccine that you can take any now and then versus something that is administered once a while and gives you immunity is, is always another good solid option uh, for plan B. You know, that the vaccine offers a huge amount of hope to the world. The translation of that hope to reality is something that's accomplished with the enterprise of private businesses. That depends tremendously on funding, tremendously on guaranteed government offtake. Depends on government skin in the game because of being vocal for their local needs in terms of manufacturing. It's about the role of communities and our experience with that. And also it's about disaggregating the overall vaccine chain or the overall pharmaceutical chain from what happens in the West, the other sides of the world. Uh, like everyone else, uh, hoping that we get through this very quickly and wishing every healthcare worker out there a deep sense of gratitude. Thank you, Amang. Thank you, David. Thank you, Raghandeep, for those wonderful comments. Then let's go back to the science for a second. Raghandeep, can you say a word about this last point that Umang uh, mentioned, which is obviously it's not only about the vaccines, right? We should be thinking about diagnostics, we should be thinking about therapeutics, we should be thinking about vaccines. I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you say a little bit about how to think about that ensemble of things as opposed to only the vaccines? So in terms of controlling the pandemic, there's a role for diagnostics, a role for drugs, a role for vaccines. All of them are critical components. And if we think back to the first SARS, we actually solved that problem without the drugs and vaccines. We solved it by using old public health techniques, basically making sure that there was no transmission of infection. And that's what we are doing with this pandemic as well. We are making sure that we have social distancing, we wear masks, we decrease transmission, and when people get sick, we offer them supportive therapy. So all of these have a role to play. Something as simple in looking after patients, the idea that the lungs are better aerated if the patient is in a prone position. We didn't know that until we understood what was happening with this particular virus. So there is drugs and vaccines and diagnostics are tools, but we have other tools as well. In terms of whether one is better than the other, obviously I think prevention is better than cure, but there is a role for both. Vaccines have been successful for many things, unsuccessful for others. Antivirals are actually really, really challenging. We don't have an antiviral for measles at the moment, but we do have vaccines. We have drugs, antivirals that are really good for HIV, but we don't have an HIV vaccine. So it's not about laying one off the other. It's how many tools can you have in your toolbox to address this problem. Vaccines, you know, yes, diagnostics, yes, sort of treatments. I would also, I think one sort of glaring deficiency in this area is the absence of good data, reliable data on surveillance. You know, what we see throughout the world are these, we have these models. So there are huge differences in the estimates and projections of COVID coming from different models. Even the same model from day to day is changing so dramatically. 
you know, bouncing up and down. It's going moving around like a pinball, which is very unfortunate. And I think the problem is that the models are fine structurally. We're feeding in unreliable data to them because it's coming from highly selected samples. We need to focus much more on representative samples and collect data for those, including testing data. It's easy, inexpensive, well-established approach to doing this. And I'd like to see a lot more of it throughout the world. And I should mention, David has been very instrumental in putting this into play in the state of Massachusetts and elsewhere in the U.S. Thank you for reminding us of the uh, role of data and informed decision-making, not just in the actual scientific process, but more in structuring the entire societal value chain that Umang was also mentioning in different ways. Let me ask a slightly different question, which connects to things that both David and Umang alluded to, which has to do with intellectual property rights. I remember reading very recently, I think it was Costa Rica that made a submission to the WHO uh, saying that there should be global patent pools in some ways and in a sense a way of saying that the IP is most likely the vaccine if and when it emerges is going to emerge in China or the US most likely probabilistically and then what happens after that so just thinking ahead but does anyone on the panel want to comment on any aspect of intellectual property because this is a recurrent theme from CEPI, one of the things that we did early, CEPI was set up with donor funding and the idea was equitable access. And we've had discussions about IP right from the get-go. If you are doing early stage funding of vaccine development, you're actually taking on a project that has a much lower probability of success than a later stage project, which is where MNCs are now coming in and buying up small biotechs. So how do you quantify risk? One of the things that CEPI thought about was step-in rights that would go through the entire life cycle of the product. How do you create a structure that ensures that wherever the vaccine goes, it will always be an affordable, accessible vaccine? And those kinds of agreements have been really very hard to negotiate. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why none of the MNCs really came into a SEPI project. It was mostly small biotechs. So I, I think there is, honestly, on, on this side, I, I really think that this was a big issue for the pharmaceutical industry. I, I can imagine it becoming a bigger issue for vaccines now. But I think my experience over the last seven years is that it's not such a big issue anymore. And I think there are three things that have driven it. Uh, the first is the coming up of the industry in India, etc., to provide quality products at affordable prices. The second is the willingness of multinational corporations to tie up and in some way either do an agreement that allows these people to make for a range of countries or in some forms compulsory licensing type agreements, right, which makes the drug available or the cure available for people in the countries. And the third thing is the viable funding models, the intermediaries who can guarantee this kind of access for the private players. So I think if those three get put right, I actually don't think intellectual property is coming in the way, at least on the pharmaceutical side of the world anymore, because for any product, there's either licensing that's happening into the country, or it's just uh, a license to produce and manufacture, like we have for uh, Remdesivir. We have for so many other drugs, uh, you know, so phosphobir. And Galadin, you alluded to this in your opening comments, and it was interesting that India was one of the signatories to CEPI, or one of the original founders to, uh, of CEPI. But my sense is that historically there has been inadequate, and both David and Among spoke about this might be an inflection point for appreciation of science. But I think India and the developing countries have put in less into the relevant science than arguably we should have. That's probably an indisputable point. But 
Practically speaking, is there a way that you can see developing countries like India or Brazil playing a greater role in the science that's needed to develop antiretrovirals or vaccines or what have you, as opposed to the manufacturing side, whereas we have lots of capacity? I think one of the things that has changed a lot in the scientific world today is that we are no longer as far behind the West as we used to be. 20 years ago, it would take you six months to get a reagent. You had to plan your experiments way in advance. Now it's gotten to a stage where it's weeks and months rather than years. So if there is a decision made that in terms of biology, there is a target that we are going after, we have really strong science institutions that can do this. Now, why are companies not investing as much in R&D as in other parts of the world? Well, it's really because Gavi and others are really shaving profit margins for Indian vaccine companies. You're making billions of doses, but you're actually making very tiny amounts of money on every dose of vaccine that you sell, unlike the multinationals where the margins are much larger. So the ability to invest in R&D with industry is low. We also have now within the government, the Department of Biotechnology, the Department of Science and Technology that are willing to offer a lot more funding than was available. It's nothing like the scale that you could get from the European Commission or you could get in the US, but it is significantly more than was there before. So with this alignment of academia now being willing to work with industry, and government being willing to fund, I think we're going to see a lot more science and a lot more R&D with Indian industry in the future, certainly where biologicals are concerned. I agree with Dr. Kang. I think we're certainly not several years behind anymore as an industry. But there are some practical challenges as well. I think if you were to borrow a leaf out of uh, China's model, but you know, this, the sheer presence of an ecosystem that can attract talent uh, to come and experiment, to come and learn, and to be incentivized are very different. So let me explain it. I mean, if you're, again, a large portion of China's economic model actually started with a reverse migration of their talent from San Francisco, and I'm talking about the technology model, right? From back to the country, back to their own mainland and it's called sea turtles and they created these huge clusters of innovation to help them and also there was a model for them being able to get incentivized and for healthcare to be paid for for the innovation i think the biggest issue with the innovation is that there has to be somebody who pays for the innovation i mean it's easy for pharma companies to invest more monies into innovation but more or less what happens is that a lot of that innovation starts getting positioned to markets which have active models to pay for it because you have to recover the cost of your in some way or the other. And I think we must have an act, and, and you know, the government started the universal health coverage. I think that's a phenomenal thing because it allows at least so many patients to get cured. And for Indian companies to realize that there is a funding mechanism now by virtue of drugs being bought and more patients can be put on these medications and drugs. So I think the funding model is extremely important for any innovation environment to system. 
one has to recover the cost of the innovation, but that also includes the cost of failed innovations. And innovations can fail for a lot of reasons, not just because it didn't work, but you know there are competitors. Someone came up with a cure for COVID, the value of the vaccine initiatives would be very depreciated and those would fizzle. So there's lots of sources of risk here. And I do like the idea, though, Tarun, of a, a global patent pool. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so that's worth developing. And I think also CEPI is working on a fair allocation mechanism for the vaccines it develops. I like that idea as well. I was listening to something on one of the news, and they were talking about these advanced market commitments that I had mentioned briefly as another mechanism to reassure Big Pharma that, yes, there will be bottom money at the end of the rainbow so that you should invest in capacity or what have you. And then it occurred to me that, you know, even the AMCs, the advanced market commitments, are only credible if the underlying state is credible, if the underlying government is credible, or the entity that's giving the commitment is credible. So if you have, you know, many of these qualities in the developing world that give a promise, and then either directly or indirectly violate the promise and don't follow through on the commitment. It really blows a hole in the fabric of trust that's needed to make this whole system work. And as a lot of comments, all three of the panelists have mentioned things that are about maintaining balance in different senses, whether it's a scientific balance, an economic balance, a financial balance, to get this kind of symphony working correctly. You know, I was talking to one of our vaccine manufacturers and they said one of the prior epidemics, government would buy the capacity capacity, but it wasn't clear the commitment was entirely carried through. I don't know the facts about this entirely, but if that's the case, and I know that's happened in Latin America, then it really makes it difficult to have these reassurances. It's all just a different way of saying that there's so many parties here whose interests have to be aligned all the way from the scientists to the community health workers on the ground, that unless we get this balance right, it becomes very hard. What I want to do is just say if there are any final comments based on the conversation or maybe things that you would encourage the audience and society writ large to think about as we work our way through this difficult time. I think one of the things other than the idea of vaccine succeeding that's encouraging is the ACT Accelerator, which is the access to COVID-19 tools that's being put together by the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, WHO, Gabby's part of it. And it focuses on vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. But the nice thing about it is that there are multinational companies involved, as well as the developing country vaccine manufacturers, at least where vaccines are concerned. So this has become a platform where people are actually talking about how do we get vaccines to people who need them the most. It doesn't matter who makes the vaccine. How quickly can we get these vaccines made and delivered? And recognizing that we are not going to be able to vaccinate the whole world in one go, is there an approach that we can take to prioritization so we make sure that the people who are most in need can get vaccines quickly? Seeing the world come together like that is really encouraging. What I would like to see is the move to a new pattern of sustained and large-scale commitments to vaccine development. And I think that's going to be a movement that takes advantage of everything the private sector has to offer and that encompasses big pharma as well as non-big pharma developers and manufacturers. And basically have a crisis now. Crisis is also an opportunity 
But I think the idea that you floated before, Karen, about kind of global patent pools, I think this is a good time to develop a plan. And I feel like CEPI is a big step in that direction. I think we can take that further. And I think in the end, just in terms of this commitment, I think we just need to invest a lot more money in vaccine development. And again, I think we're going to have, somewhat ironically, COVID-19 to thank because it is providing irrefutable proof of the colossal benefits of staying the course when it comes to the development, the manufacturing, the delivery of vaccines. The problem is there are so many pathogens out there that lurk in our future. There are literally dozens that are known, and there are obviously many, many more that are unknown. And I think that's the big challenge. I, so I do like the idea also of thinking of it as some kind of half-baked cakes, developing a lot of vaccines halfway so that if a pathogen becomes, leads to an outbreak, that we can actually finish it off and move quickly, which, which is something we haven't been able to do with COVID-19. I think the world's in a much better place today than 10 years back or even five years back, or as Dr. Chan said, six months back to solve this problem. And I think there's tremendous hope in the vaccine. And I'm just saying that the, the ability of getting this vaccine to be accessible is another journey. It's an equally long journey of hope that all of us need to sign up for, whether it's the governments or all of us as private players. So we're, we're excited to get on with that journey. And I hope that we have that dimension in mind as well, rather than just the delivery of the vaccine. Thank you to all the panelists for joining us. And thank you for supporting all our efforts at Harvard and across India and different organizations.